Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Uh, Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us as we work our way through this passage. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So this section is kind of, I have a little bit of OCD and it kills me because I was supposed to go all the way to the end of chapter three today. You'll notice in your bulletins, it says to go all the way to three. I've like mapped out the whole year. I'd like things to be nice and tidy in my mind. And there's a struggle when you're led by the spirit and he's telling you to slow down. So I decided for the sake of um, being concise that this passage is so important that I would not, I would hold off on those next few verses to next week. Um, I think I'll survive um, changing from the plan. Um, but this section, some have described as the, the, the center of all of Romans, that this, this, these five verses, if there's five there, maybe it's six, are, are the jugular vein of, of Romans. A, a guy that none of you know who he is, Dr. Leon Morris. Uh, he's home with the Lord. He's uh, editor for a major um, commentary series, he suggests that these five verses are the most important, that this paragraph is the most important paragraph that's ever been written in human history. So it can be a little bit intimidating coming to it as a pastor to teach on it, because I understand how much depth there are in these few words. Uh, Dr. Paul, uh, nobody really refers to Paul, the apostle, the doctor, but certainly this Jewish man, by any uh, theological standard, was he is a, a scholar, a brilliant, brilliant man. And it's that God chose him with his understanding of the Old Testament, that he would pull him out of what he understood to show him and to reveal him the gospel in the way he did. If you read Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, you'll see that in his journey after conversion, that God took him into the wilderness and he spent 14 years studying i believe that he was going through the whole of the old testament evaluating everything he thought he understood about the messiah and aligning his thoughts accurately with who christ was and had revealed himself to be it takes a great mind that's led by the spirit to produce the words that we're about to study and so it begins with two words But now, I really think there should be a huge separation here. I literally, between verses 20 and 21, I've drawn a line between um, those those lines separating this section. 
This but now is a huge, almost should be in bold print, separating what's about to follow from everything that's come. We've had a few weeks off from Romans, so to remind us, what is the separation? We have to go back to chapter 1, verse 18. And in chapter 1, verse 18, we begin this section where Paul begins to build his case saying that the, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And so we see that the wrath of God is revealed. Uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, for the most part, show how all humanity are due God's wrath. He begins in chapter one with those that are uh, just living life apart from God. Then he turns his attention to chapter two, in chapter two uh, to the to the moralist, the one who believes in right and wrong, but not necessarily in God. And then he turns his attention to the Jewish person, where he finally concludes in chapter three, verse nine, where he strings together a whole series of uh, verses throughout the Old Testament, he strings them masterfully together that says, There is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. All the way down to verse 19, where he concludes that section saying, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so as he goes through those three chapters, he, he basically builds the case that for any excuse that we have, but, but I'm a good person, but, but I go to church, but I do this. God just basically zips your mouth shut and he says, you don't understand who I am. If we were just to stop at verse 20 of chapter three, it would be pretty discouraging because it paints you are helpless. But then we get to verse 21 and he says, but now that's the bad news. That's the bad news apart from Christ. Let's get to the good news. But now apart from the law. The righteousness of God has been manifested. There's this, this picture of that this word manifest creates. It literally could be used to describe the sun rising up over the horizon. So apart from the law, distinct from the law, he's shown us already that the law does not save you. All the law, the Old Testament, what the Ten Commandments, but really it's the 613 commandments of the Old Testament. All they do is show you your depravity. They show you your helplessness. They reveal to you your desperate condition. And he says, but apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. In your definitions, you'll see the very first term there is righteousness of God, which says God's righteousness is the natural expression of his holiness. If he is infinitely pure, then he must be opposed to all sin. And that opposition to sin must be demonstrated in his treatment of his creatures. 
when we read that God is righteous or just, we are being assured that his actions towards us are in perfect agreement with his holy nature. And so we see that his, his righteousness has been manifested to us. Paul uses this term, the righteousness of God, about three times in our section. He used it previously, if you would turn with me, back to chapter 1 and verse 17. He uses almost the identical phrase. In verse 17, in describing the gospel, remember, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then he gives a second reason why he's not ashamed of the gospel. He says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And so the only difference or the distinction between the way Paul uses these two things, some of you may care about this, some of you probably don't care about this. And the first time in in Romans chapter 1 verse 17, it's in the present tense, meaning that Paul's saying that every time the gospel is proclaimed, the righteousness of God is revealed. However, in chapter 3 verse 21, when he says, but now apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been manifested. It's in the perfect tense, meaning a one-time action that has ongoing effects. So he's referring back to the historic event of the crucifixion of Christ. So in the crucifixion of Christ, the righteousness of God has been manifested. He goes on to say, being witnessed By the law and the prophets. Whenever you see the law and the prophets, this simply means the whole Old Testament as we know it. The the law would be the the first five books of the Bible. And then everything after that's always referred to in the Jewish mind as the prophets. So when Paul says he describes this righteousness of God, this perfection of God, this holiness of God that separates God from his creation, that has been manifested this, this revelation, we think, oh, this is something new that Paul received. But he says, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul says, this is nothing new. If you go through the whole Old Testament, you'll see that this message has always been there. When we continue through Romans very closely, it was supposed to be in a couple of weeks when we get to Romans chapter 4. We'll see that he's going to demonstrate, he's going to give an example from the Old Testament from Abraham, the great Jewish leader, showing that indeed this is nothing new. This salvation by faith alone, it was never based on works. So he says the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ For all who believe, for there is no distinction. So here to to explain this verse, I sort of want to chop off some things. Don't get worried. I'm not going to ignore the other stuff. I'm not changing the Bible. But in verse 22, it essentially says, even the righteousness of God for all those who believe. So he's basically saying the righteousness of God is given to those who believe. But he adds a number of things. For even the righteousness of God through faith. Faith is going to be used in the, uh, I don't even know how many times between 
the time it surfaces here and the end of chapter four, it's probably 15 times that this word faith is going to be used. Now, what does faith mean? If you look at your terms of definitions, all I've taken is Hebrews chapter 11, verses one and two. It's really chapter verse one that defines it. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. I thought it was great last week that Dr. Hare touched on this. Hope in our culture just sort of, it's ambivalent. It could mean there's no assurance necessarily. But when the Bible uses the term hope, it means that God said it and there is absolute assurance based on his faithfulness that what he says will come to be true. Now the second part of that, or the verse 2, it says, For by it the men of old gained approval. And in Hebrews chapter 11, if you go through Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see a number of people from the Old Testament who lived by faith. They trusted God. Most of them never even saw in their lifetime God's the the promises revealed to them or manifested to them. And Paul's going to do that same thing here with faith. He's going to show us an example from one of the heroes of faith found in Hebrews chapter 11. That's Abraham, like I mentioned. And so here in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I have that bracketed faith in Jesus Christ. That's that's the Christian life. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not about works. That's the heart of Romans. Romans 117. But we talked about the gospel for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, quoting from Habakkuk. So through faith in Jesus Christ, that's how the righteousness of God is credited to us for all of those who believe there's no distinction. Paul's addressing his Jewish brothers. He's addressing those Gentiles that are apart from God, the moralist. There's no distinction in humanity for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. Recently, I took a little trip to Israel and looking out of the window from like seven seats across from me because I didn't have a window seat, but Jackie had a window seat so she can verify it's amazing to me that at thirty five thousand feet, when you look out of the window, the earth looks pretty much flat. There's no distinction there. There might be a, you might fly over um, the Alps or you could see the Grand Canyon, but it all just sort of looks the same. There's no distinction. There's differences in humanity, but there's no distinction when we're talking about the righteousness of God. There's no None of us stand apart from one another when we're starting to talk about sinfulness. Paul had made the case that we all have missed the mark. No one seeks after God. He says, for all have sinned and fall short. That fall short is in the present active indicative. It literally could be translated. For all have sinned. And are falling short of the glory of God. That we continue to miss the mark. Back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and 27. God speaks about creating humanity. Let us create man in our image. 
that we, when we were created as humanity, we were image bearers of God. But in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam sinned, our condition changed because sin entered the world. We failed to meet this mark of representing God or carrying the glory of God. Another guy that none of us know. The reason I'm saying that is I kept reviewing this with Anna. She's like, we don't know who those people are. We don't. <laughs> but there's a guy. His name's Bishop Handley Mule. He's an, a British guy. He said something that I thought was very good. Concerning this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are all short of it. But so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mind and you on the crest of an alp. But you are as little able to touch the stars as they. It's brilliant. None of us can. Some of us might be closer by a couple miles, but we still have infinitely further to go. If we compare ourselves with one another, sure, some of us might sin more than another person. But we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And verse 24 is where we get into some heavy theological stuff. He's already said that the righteousness of God has been manifested. That through faith, this righteousness of God is for all those who believe, those who have faith in Christ. Now he says in verse 24, being justified. What is justification? Is it's it's going to be used justify to, to justify, justify, justification. These are huge theological terms. And you'll see that it, how it's defined. It says that justification can be defined as the act of God whereby he declares absolutely righteous any and all who take their shelter in the blood of Christ as their only hope for salvation. Justification is a legal term which changes the believing sinner standing before God, declaring him acquitted and accepted by God with the guilt and penalty of his sins put away forever. Justification is the sentence of a judge in favor of the condemned man, clearing him from all blame and freeing him of every charge. Justification does not make the sinner righteous. But when God sees him in Christ, he declares that he is righteous, thereby pronouncing the verdict of not guilty. The opposite term of justification would be condemnation. This is a legal term, a judge standing there as somebody who's on trial. One could be termed justified, the other one condemned. This is different from being pardoned or sanctified. Pardon would be you're guilty. Often the governors or the presidents will pardon people. This has nothing to do with innocent or guilt. They're guilty, but their their punishment is being relieved of them. Sanctification is actually like the cleansing process or the, the work of becoming more like Christ. Justification is simply God the judge through faith in Christ declaring that in his eyes you stand justified. You're no longer guilty of your sin because it's been paid for by the blood of Christ. He goes on to say, having been justified, if we 
Yeah, there's so much here. If we jump down to verse 26, I'm skipping ahead on this, this justified. In verse 26, as Paul's reflecting on this, he says, For the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So I'm showing you how, where, when I get at verse uh, 24, when he says being justified, we're justified by him who is just and the justifier. It's his proclamation that says we stand justified in Christ. How does this happen? It's a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You didn't earn it. You did nothing to get your justification before God. It's a gift by his grace, giving us favor that's undeserved to us through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, this term redemption, I'm skipping over grace. We we understand grace, I think. But redemption means to release or to set free with the implied analogy to process of freeing a slave to set free to liberate to deliver liberation deliverance so when we see this justified as a gift by grace through the redemption which is in christ jesus the question is what are we redeemed from for those of us who've trusted in christ what have we been set free what have we been liberated from i think our first reaction would be to say oh from sin (laughs) man i'm still like struggling with sin like I'm st- like there, sin is still a struggle. I might not be dealing with the same stuff that I was dealing with 15 years ago. But I, I still struggle. But it says that as a gift by his grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. What have we been set free from? What have we been liberated from? Now, if we backtrack to stay in context. We have to go back to verse 18. Remember where this all started from. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. The wrath of God is coming. Because of his righteousness, because of his holiness, he has to punish sin. And so in Christ, there's shelter. We've been saved. We've been redeemed from the wrath of God that's due us. If we go over to chapter 5, verse 9, we see much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We're protected from the wrath of God that's due us. We weren't made sinless. We were justified by his works because God proclaimed us justified. He goes on to say whom God displayed publicly. This word strikes me for those of you who went to Israel and you go to the location of the garden tomb. The English bought this location like a hundred and something years ago. And at the edge of the property line where you walk, it's a busy bus stop packed with buses You can see the gate from old Jerusalem that comes out. And then there's a cliff there that they call Golgotha. Why do they call it Golgotha? Because that's what it's always been called. But in that you can kind of see the the uh, the image of a school. 
which is what Golgotha means. Today, it's still a busy location because it's always been a busy location. So when Jesus that day when he was crucified, our images have him like out on the countryside in a very remote sort of scenic setting. That's not how Romans crucified people. They did it right outside the main entrance of a town as a warning to visitors that came in saying this is how discipline will be handled. So behave yourselves in there. And there Christ hung naked growing up in the catholic church i have the the crucif the having the crucifix i don't really have a problem with jesus on the cross because he was on the cross but they always put a little rag over his genitals but that's not how he hung he hung naked in front of everybody publicly because he loved me because he loved you because the wrath that was due us was placed on him Because of God's great love for us. Publicly is a propitiation. Another big word. I finally can say it after many years of seminary. (laughs) Propitiation. Propitiation means the turning away of wrath by an offering. In relation to soteriology. That's another big word. Means salvation. Propitiation means placating or satisfying the wrath of God by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And when we look at this section, there are words here that you could spend months just studying these words and the theological truths behind them. So being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. So him on the cross publicly He was paying the penalty, buying those that were enslaved to sin as a propitiation, satisfying the wrath of God. That there's safety there. I just read from Romans 5, 9, but it applies so much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. In Christ, there's so much peace and security That there's a storm brewing of God's wrath. And in Christ, there's safety and security. Back in 96, I was a young SEAL. And I was on one of my first few training operations up in Santa Barbara. There's a bunch of oil platforms. uh, Go plats is what they call them. Gas and oil platforms. Chevron had opened up their platforms for us to do training on. As we went out there. I don't think it was my first trip out there, but we were practicing doing our entries from the water where we would hook a caving ladder up and we would climb up. But the swells were significant. We're talking like 20 foot swells. You'd grab onto the ladder. The next thing you know, before you have your feet in, you're you're hanging like 20 feet over the water. And then the wave would come back again. Finally, they had to cancel training because the boats couldn't safely navigate onto the oil platforms because the oil platforms aren't actually in the ground. They're setting on the ground and the weight of them sort of holds them in place, but they shift a little bit. And so they say, we're going to cancel training. And so they say, hey, you guys have a couple days to stay, enjoy yourselves in Santa Barbara. There's a big swell. I'm like, dude, I'm going to go check out Rincon. <laughs> See how the swell's hitting. Rincon was like pitcher perfect, probably 20 foot surf coming across a perfect wave. I didn't have a surfboard up there, so I ran to the nearest surf shop. 
I bought the surfboard that I could afford, which wasn't the right kind of surfboard. It was too short for what I needed. I needed a bigger surfboard so that I could navigate the waters. And all my buddies were like, you're crazy. I'm like, no, I have grown up surfing. This is like, this is, this is the Super Bowl for surfers. So I grabbed my board and I paddle out. And the board was not giving me the speed that I needed to get past the waves. They were just too big. And so I caught a couple on the inside and, and I'm going, oh, man, I, gotta, I, I just got to call it a day. This board's going to get me killed out here. And so I decide to turn around, but I see Rincon. There's, if you take the, if you take in the 101 before Santa Barbara, there's that whole stretch of freeway that goes right along the ocean. And the spot's right there. But because of the size of the waves, what had happened is as the waves were hitting, they were basically pushing south. So there's this huge river flowing south. And I remember talking with the guys. I'm like, how do we get out? They're like, well, you can either do the rocks, but there's like 20 foot waves crashing over the rocks. Or you can ride the river down 10 miles. And then there's a little oil platform that's a false island. And there's a sandy beach down there. And you can get out there. And I'm like, okay. And I'm kind of. I'm like 20. I'm like, when I was 21. I'm like, I'm a Navy SEAL. I'm just going to like go for it. I'm going to just like go through and take my chances on the rocks. As I get closer, I see that the whole freeway is lined with like thousands of people. Surfer magazine, all of the cameras are there. And I'm like, this is going to be embarrassing. <laughs> but I got to go for it. And so I came up with my battle plan. I was going to ride a wave into the rocks. Or no, I was going to paddle in between waves, run up the rocks as high as I could go before the next wave came. And I was hoping that there'd be a rock that I could brace myself, that I could hide behind as the 20-foot wave like engulfed us. And so I got up there, I r- ran up the rocks, and then this, I mean, it's like our back wall size wave. And then I see all of the people like, I can hear them gasping like, oh, this poor sap is going to get demolished. And I hid behind the rock, and the wave exploded all around me. I don't know what happened to the surfboard because I took it off my leg. I didn't want it to, like, hook me back out. And uh, the wave exploded. I must have disappeared from their sight for a few minutes. But nothing happened to me because I was totally sheltered from the, 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 like the total blast of this wave. And then as soon as it went away, I skimpered up the rocks, and they were like, woo like there were like cheers like that was awesome i'm like yeah it's no big deal and i ran back and all my buddies are like all my buddies are like where were you we lost you i'm like oh i was just out there shredding it no problem i just decided to come in i got tired like yeah right you know but the point is i was safe behind that rock and that rock took all of the blast and the wrath of god is coming towards us and our safety our rock is christ that's where we need to sit that's where we need to cling on to Because it's in him that we have safety. We have propitiation. We're justified. We're redeemed through him. Paul said who God displayed publicly is a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for this demonstration, for the demonstration, I say of his righteousness at the present time that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ or in Jesus. So in this, we see that his righteousness twice, I'm pretty sure, although I didn't highlight them. So 
this is where I was like, man, how am I going to cover the whole chapter? I don't think I can do it. But to demonstrate his righteousness, there's number one. And then in verse 26, I say of his righteousness at the present time. So Paul, the emphasis is that God is righteous. And back to our definitions, the righteousness of God, God's righteousness is a natural expression of his holiness. If he is infinitely pure, he must be opposed to all sin. And that opposition to sin must be demonstrated in his treatment of his creatures. When we read that God is righteous or just, we are being assured that his actions toward us are in perfect agreement with his nature. And so as Paul is contemplating these great theological truths of his years of training, he's an older man by the time he's writing Romans. Of course, led by the Spirit, that the Spirit of God is using him, using all of his training as he reflects on the law, the whole Old Testament, everything that's been revealed about the coming Messiah. When he gets to this section talking about justification, grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, propitiation, this was to demonstrate God's righteousness. And he says, because of the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, this word forbearance, interesting. It was too late for me to add this one in there. But if you Google forbearance, the top hit that you're going to see, it's a real estate term. Forbearance is an agreement that happens between a lender and a borrower When payments haven't been made by the borrower and foreclosure is impending, the wrath of the bank coming towards you, forbearance means that the borrower and the lender have reached an agreement to hold off foreclosure so that they can find out a way to forestall foreclosure and to get into right standing. It literally means holding back. And so Paul, as he writes here, that God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For this demonstration, I say of his righteousness at the present time, that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. When I see this, I can't help but to think of 2 Peter chapter 3. When we sat over Megiddo, Megiddo is this tell in Israel that overlooks Jezreel Valley where Armageddon is supposed to happen. They say it's supposed to have blood that flows up to somewhere on a horse that I'm not sure. Yeah, bridle. I know it's a bridle, but, you know, you guys make it seem so simple now. But it's high. Maybe they're big horses or short horses. I don't know, but it's going to be blood and it's going to be bad. And when I get up there, the only thing I think of is in Second Peter chapter 3, when Peter says they're going to start mocking you. Where's this wrath of God? When's he going to come? What's he going to do? When's he going to do all this stuff? For God's, maybe he's not God. And Peter says, it's because God is patient and he desires all men to come to salvation, that he's holding back his wrath. He's just and he's the justifier. And it forces us to go back to the very beginning of Romans. For Paul says that he opens up this letter with after he got through all of his introductions. 
He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is defined by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, which is simply that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. That is the gospel. And Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. These two, the wrath of God and the righteousness of God, that in the gospel, we see God's righteousness. He's just. What do we say about good judges that basically see a criminal and say, oh, uh, you murdered seven people. Why don't you just go pick up trash on the freeway for uh, two weeks and then we'll um, we'll put you on probation for the next 10 years. We get furious because that's not a just judge. God would not be just if he didn't deal with sin. And in Christ, he dealt with sin because he's just. If you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, or 17, excuse me. Verse 21, excuse me. That he, the Father, made him, that's Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so as Christ hung there on the cross without sin, the wrath of God that was due all of our sins of all time was placed upon him. God is just and his wrath has to go out to the sin of the world. But then as he makes the penalty, the God who judges us is the God who justifies us. That in faith in Christ, he proclaims that we're righteous. And it's a beautiful thing. That's why we celebrate Easter. That's why we worship. That's why we're here. And to end today, I knew I'd be a little bit short. It's okay. Looking at Romans, I just want to read this passage in its entirety now that we've heard it. It's been explained. We know some of the terms. I'm going to start in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the worlds may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness 
Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So my question to you today is, what have you done with the gospel? Have you rejected it? Have you put it off so that you can live your life so that the day before you die, that you'll trust in Jesus? Or have you accepted him? As we've covered the first three chapters, it's clear that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we're honest and reasonable with ourselves, with our inward thoughts, we've all missed the mark. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God so loves you, so loves me. That before the foundations of the world, he came up with a plan so that our relationship with him could be restored. And in Christ, we have reconciliation. We have fellowship. We have that koinonia, that intimacy with the creator of the universe that John tells us we need to abide in him, that we need to walk with him. I don't know about you, but I stand with Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. That's why we need to be praying this week for those in our community who don't normally go to church. Your friends and family who don't normally go to church. It's a great week to invite them to go to church because likely they'll say yes, simply out of the holiday. And so we pray that the gospel would penetrate the hearts of those that we know and love. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth. We thank you, Lord, that you love us so much. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand just how bad our sin is and the wrath that's due us because of that sin. Lord, we thank you that you're a just God, that you're a holy God, that you're distinct from your creation. Father, we thank you that Christ came and lived the perfect life, that he obeyed the law perfectly, that only he could do what he did. And Father, we take refuge in him by faith. We thank you it's not a system of works. Father, we pray that you would help us to walk in grace. Father, that you would use us as your ambassadors for Christ. We love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.